Welcome to Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We're two best friends entering the world of true crime. I'll be sharing the stories of some of the worst and most horrific murder cases in history with the help of professional criminologists, and we're taking you along for the ride. In this episode, we're looking into the infamous star of Jeremy Kyle, it's Mick Philpot. First, Danny, how are you doing? Um, I'm good. I've had some uh, interesting nature encounters. What? <laughs> I am. Um, I've been doing a lot of early morning driving, and now that spring has sprung, and um, there's a lot more nature about. And today, before I came here, I um, I thought I saw a a pheasant that was potentially injured. Mm. And so I was like, oh, and I pulled over to be like, hello, are you okay, pheasant? And um, because it was like, it was like squatting, right? And at first I was like, is it laying an egg? And then it was a colourful one and that means it's a man. So he wasn't laying an egg. I was like, oh, is he hurt? And then um, he got away, like he's, I got close and he sort of started flapping and kind of flapped away. And there was like this little, like, dark pile i think he was constipated <laughs> i think i saw a peasant trying to have a shit and you interrupted <laughs> and I him interrupted him making it worse yeah and i was like what the fuck just happened so i got back in my car that was my good deed for the day today uh pheasant is fine um but yeah i also earlier in the week saw a magpie chasing a rodent uh i couldn't tell if it was like a rat or a squirrel chasing its lunch yeah but do they do that I didn't think they do that. Someone told me maybe they they thought maybe it was protecting its nest. But oh, um, it was, I almost witnessed my own murder, uh, magpie murder. Uh, that's going to be the title of my new book. Yeah, they are omnivores. Oh, they, they hunt animals. You didn't see that on Farthingwood. I'm mm. just putting that out there. No. Is it Farthingwood? Is that the an- animals of Farthingwood? Yeah. I got confused with Winnie the Pooh for a second there. <laughs> It'll be a very different cartoon. (laughs) (laughs) We are going to be talking about Mick Philpot today. And this episode is quite a sad one because there is references to violence against children. So if it is something that you'd like to avoid hearing, then probably skip this episode. So are you ready to to listen to this one? Is anybody ever actually ready to listen to it? Probably no, not. Probably not. No, but let's do it anyway. I okay. used to watch Jeremy Kyle. I used to watch Jeremy Kyle. Um and I feel now I'm older and wiser and know better on reflection what an awful program. Yeah, how was it actually allowed to be on TV? I, I had know. that exact same thought, but at the time I was like, oh yeah, Jezekeza, I'll watch that. We used to call him Jezekeza. Yeah. I think most people felt like that. But now you're like, yeah, that wasn't okay. All and that show was was exploiting people. It, it really and totally was. And, yeah. and he was someone that clearly wasn't qualified enough to be dealing with people yeah. with their issues. For context, Jeremy Kyle, for those outside of the UK, Jeremy Kyle was like the Jerry Springer. Yeah. In it, but like, trash. It was. I mean, I can't say Jeremy, Jerry Springer was ever... No, I just, I feel like it was a public humiliation of people 
who were also being exploited for daytime TV entertainment. Yeah. The lie detectors, though. Yeah, my favourite ones were probably um, the lie detectors on finding out if someone had been cheating. Which also you wouldn't want to find out on I, live TV. Yeah. But but I love the American wholesome ones where you have someone that's adopted that's never met their their real parents and then they get their investigators on it and they find their real parents and they have this lovely reunion and they have this heartfelt story as to why they couldn't look after them. They were young, they were a teenager, they didn't know what they were doing, they wanted them to have a better life and then they have a relationship and it's just, oh. But yeah, Jerry McCall was... Not like that. Anyway, let's set the scene. It's the 10th of May, 2012. At home in Allenton, Derby, here in the UK, six children are getting ready for bed. Jade, John, Jack, Jesse, Jaden and Dwayne are between the ages 13 and 5. They all share the same mother, but their home life has been anything but normal. Their dad, Mick Philpot, has fathered at least a dozen other children, some of whom lived with them for a time. Several hours later, into the early morning, the children are fast asleep. The adults of the house, Mick and his wife, Maraid, are sitting downstairs. Suddenly, the house gets hotter and fills with smoke. A fire has started and isn't stopping at any time soon. The blaze rips through the family home. Fire coming out of that box, fire coming from around the sides of the doors. Two adults are able to escape, but all six children are trapped inside. Firefighters and paramedics battle in to save their lives, but the fire claims all six children. The damage to the house is drastic, and there is no way that those poor six children could possibly have escaped. Smoke inhalation alone would have been deadly. Mick and Maraid cry in front of the cameras, in front of the British public, but it was all a facade. Mick knew exactly what had happened because he had deliberately started the fire. It was all part of an elaborate plan. Oh, my God! Let's go back to the start. Michael, Mick, Philpot was born in 1956. He grew up in Derby as part of a large Roman Catholic family. His attention would have been shared amongst many children um, and his mum worked very hard in a local factory in which she retired when she was quite old. So it wasn't really an unusual background by any means. He just had a lot of siblings and had a mum that wasn't around a lot. But I think that's quite standard for working class families. I didn't see my mum a lot when I was a kid. Yeah. No. When he turned 19, Mick joined the army. He also began to show signs of violent temper, especially towards his girlfriends. But it didn't go unnoticed. Mick repeatedly got in trouble with the law for his abusive behaviour. Mick started seeing a girl who he would visit while he was in the army. Their relationship started when she was only 15 years old. But in 1978, she tried to end the relationship by sending him a letter and it didn't go down well at all. Local journalist Martin Naylor remembers what happened. The story with that is that... He had a girlfriend back in Derby. He was stationed wherever his regiment were. She'd had the temerity to send him a a Dear John letter ending their relationship, so he decided to go AWOL from the army, rock up at her house in Derby and attack her with a knife. And then when her mother tried to intervene, he, he attacked the mother too. Mick stabbed her 
27 times. Fucking hell. But miraculously, she lived. He was sentenced to seven years for attempted murder and grievous bodily harm. Mick served just over three years, and in 1981, he was released. And according to author and journalist Jeffrey Wansall, he went right back into his old habits. From that point onwards, Phil Potts set about controlling every woman he had any contact with, and to do so in the most outrageous way. I think if you are capable of stabbing someone 27 times, there's not something quite right there. I mean, it was miraculous that she didn't die. Of some, it was a miracle that she didn't die from that. Yeah, and he attacked her mum as well. Yeah, and I can't believe that he was released after seven years. Well, he only had seven years sentence. I just don't think that that is a, a long enough sentence for attempted murder because he clearly really was trying to. She has to live with that. It's happened to her. For the rest of her life. And when he's released as well. That's yeah. going to be quite a, tor- a torment, isn't it? In 1986, Mick got married for the first time. He and his new wife had three children together, but despite their family life, his wife said Mick was controlling and she soon found a reason to divorce him because she caught him cheating on her with a teenage girl. It would become clear Mick had a knack for manipulating young girls and usually girls that were vulnerable or with low self-esteem, easy prey, one would say, to take control of them. On her 16th birthday, his teenage girlfriend moved in with him to his home at 18 Victory Road and she soon became pregnant and gave Mick two more children in quick succession. But both of her children were boys and Mick wanted a girl, so he would regularly beat her and even encouraged their sons to join in in the violence against her. Fuck off. After countless threats, she finally left him, taking her children with her. Good. Mick claimed he wanted to have as many children as possible. By the time he was 50, he had fathered 17 children and had many relationships going on at the same time. In 2000, Mick met Murray Duffy, a 19-year-old single mother. He also met another single mother, 16-year-old Lisa Willis. Mick continued both relationships at the same time. Mick Philpott was a man who was incredibly manipulative, incredibly controlling, and had managed to basically convince these two women over a course of several years that, that this was you know, a really good thing, that actually they were lucky to have some of his attention. In 2003, Philpott marries Mary Duffy, but keeps his full-time live-in mistress. In fact, she's the bridesmaid at the marriage to Marie Duffy. It becomes a menage a trois, both bearing his children, living in a council house in Allenton, near Derby. They are, well, one could only describe it as extraordinary. Like, I know that there shouldn't really be any rules when it comes to relationships, You know, people have open relationships, some are quite flexible, but I feel like this this particular situation is definitely not one that, I don't know, feels particularly a a mutual agreement. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I feel like there's some sort of dubious aspects as to whether there's full consent here for that. Because if he's he's manipulated these women into... These young women. Yeah, if he's he's had to... He's manipulated them into agreeing to this... uh, 
it, it doesn't seem fully consensual to me and I, I'm, I'm not okay with that. Consensual open relationships, fine. Like, there shouldn't there wouldn't be an issue if everyone was agreeing to it, but can you truly agree to something if you don't fully understand? Exactly. Yeah. Um, it seems all seems a bit a bit wrong. What we've gathered so far is that Mick Philpott is not a nice person. Nope. In 2006, all three moved into a council house together where they lived on government benefits and Mick's family continued to grow. Their living situation was far from ordinary. A fact that Mick thought he could use to his advantage. I think that Mick Philpott breathes the oxygen of publicity. I think he absolutely regales in being the, the centre of attention. He loves being talked about. And I don't think the nature of attention matters very much to him. It doesn't matter if it's positive attention or negative attention as long as people are talking about him. Mick approached local journalist Martin Naylor. He had approached us as The Telegraph to say that he was living in the house with his wife and his then a girlfriend, they had children together, there were lots of them there, and he wanted a bigger council house, so we thought that by coming to his local newspaper he would get a bigger council house. So we ran the story. Uh, the following day it was picked up on by all the nationals, um, especially some of the more right-leaning ones, as you'd imagine. One of them, I think one of the tabloids, dubbed him Shameless Mick, and the kind of the media frenzy roller coaster went on from there. You might remember the tabloids went off on shameless and jobless Mick ridiculing him for demanding more from the government do you remember that? I don't recall there's always like the there's always some rags always have shit stories like that so I don't tend to pay a lot of attention to them to be yeah. honest The Telegraph also reported that he had originally decided to have a vasectomy but backed out only adding more children to his household in 2007 Mick went on the Jeremy Kyle show he chatted with Jeremy about his large family and his benefits lifestyle. When challenged, he made a rude gesture at the host, drawing even more attention to himself from the press. He becomes quite famous as a benefits scrounger because he significantly never has a job and is claiming at one point 60,000 a year in benefits as well as being given a house. And uh, He parks a caravan effectively at the side of the semi-detached council house he's living in in which he alternates. He sleeps there one night with the wife, Murray Duffy, and the next night with his mistress, as though he's some kind of emperor. He was basically having his malevolent ego fed from every angle here. But what he really didn't care about was the impact that this had on his family. His kids were bullied at school because of the attention that they got through him being in the press. His partner and, and his wife were basically labelled as stupid and ignorant. But that didn't matter. As long as people were talking about him, that's all that he cared about. It doesn't sound like... Um, like If people want to have loads of children and they, could, they have the means to do so and give them all loving... Um, attentive homes that's fine that's your choice um regardless of like anybody's feelings about it but it doesn't sound like none of this he's not doing it for that reason is he he's not having loads of kids i want loads of kids because i love children and i want this big loving family it's almost like he's just creating more people to pay attention to him yeah and also well it's been stated that he has children to claim benefits on the children and that is the purpose of the... Ha like, it, that's it, that's mind-blowing to me. Like what Jeffrey said, 
at one point he was claiming £60,000 a year in benefits. It's just fucking, it's actually like, it's like a real kick in the face, isn't it? For people that genuinely... Well, yeah, like I've had a couple of miscarriages over like my life. Mm -hmm. Like it's not that easy to have kids for some people, Mm -hmm. right? And then you've got this guy who's just fucking using them as meal tickets. Like, Mm -hmm. piss off. What are you about? It's so fucking rude. Yeah. And horrible. Uh, I I find also for... What I find frustrating is... I came from a working class family. Mm. My mum was single for a lot of time. So we... You know, we lived in a council house for a bit. She had to claim benefits, and uh, some of my best friends they they were had single mums claiming benefits because they needed the extra support. But like when there's people that are in need of benefits and government help, and who genuinely are trying their best to provide for themselves and their children, and then you've got this dickhead who is just taking the piss out of the system yeah and he knows how to play it yeah and it's like because it's not a shameful thing i don't think it's a shameful thing absolutely not yeah but in his case it is and he's and it sort of it casts a bad light on everything that's why there's this kind of stigma or are you on benefits you're a scrounger whatever that's not the case no it's not it's not the case but when you've got a guy like this that's flaunting it who who's literally in this case it is in public flaunting it look, look at me i've got all these kids i want a bigger house i've got i don't work absolute piss take always doing it for the attention and that's it and they, the media are fueling this though he's, but, but, and he's but this home is, fucking loving it but this is why there's you know it's it's feeding the stigma mm. it's because there's programs that call these people that call people on benefits like oh trash gum lazy don't want to don't want to work da 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 because people like that it feeds that narrative yeah that's a really intellectual thing to say I'm impressed by that Although Mick didn't work, he claimed he had a hand injury and his criminal record kept him from a job. But both Lisa and Maraid had jobs. Um, They both worked as part-time cleaners. And guess where the money went? In Mick's pocket. Of course. But far from being a source of their own income and a source of independence for them, he would basically take all of their wages. He would be the one who drove them to work, dropped them off and picked them up. Um, He wanted to be fully in control of of these women's lives. They didn't even have their own house key. Fuck that shit. I would not let someone take my wages. They didn't even have their own house key. Yeah. That's so sad. What a way to just completely strip away somebody's humanity. Can't even have a key to your own house. Yeah. What better way to say, this isn't your house. This is my house. Only I have access to the house. He's the king and we're the sorry people. Yeah. He was so controlling and it was a level of control that would eventually lead him into doing the unspeakable. In 2012... Now 56-year-old Mick was living with his wife, his mistress and their 11 children in a council house in Derbyshire. But behind the cameras and tabloids was an incredibly controlling man. He was also obsessed with sex and would regularly bring around partners outside of the two he lived with. Um, One of the regular partners was Mick's friend Paul Mosley and he would encourage Maraid to participate in threesomes and these sexual exploits of Mick and Maraid didn't stop at home. There was an incident where they went out dogging in Alastry Park. Now people who live in Derby know Derby and know that Alastry is a relatively affluent area and to hear that uh, you know people have been going there to watch other people having sex in cars 
sort of comes across as quite a shock. And so it, it was it was seedy. They were having threesomes. They were going out and having sex in cars. Dogging. They were dogging. There was a lot of seedy shit going down. Not the healthiest environment for children. No. Um, also, he's not a conventionally good-looking man, Mick. He's not a nice man. How the fuck is he comp- convincing all these people? He must be so charming. The ladies that he typically would go for were vulnerable, low self-esteem. That's just so gross. It just, uh, I just feel like I feel like I need a my insides need a shower. I think threesomes and dogging is cool if you're like well into it. I think it has a place. Yeah, I mean, if it's what you're into, it's what you're into. But, but from this, it, like, he's married. He's got his mistress. He's bringing in other people into the house to have sex with. He's bringing his mate over and saying, let's have a threesome. I just don't really think the girls have a choice. Yeah, once again, like, it has a place where consent also has a place. And I feel like consent doesn't have a place in this in these relationships. Like, it doesn't have a full place in these relationships because he there's too much entitlement. Piss me off. In February, Mick's mistress Lisa decided she'd had enough. She took her five children and moved out. Forensic psychologist Chris Carter said this couldn't have been easy, especially considering Mick's temper. A lot of people won't have that courage, but she just decided, look, enough is enough. She did the right thing. She didn't go up to him and say, I'm leaving you. Because I think if she tried doing that, he would overpower her because he was a violent person. And say, no, you're not leaving, or maybe lock her in. He, he would have done something. Um, but she did the right thing. She walked away first and then sent them a message and said, I'm gone, you know. And then he couldn't find her anymore. This was a point at which Lisa had decided to take control, to take her children and to go to a women's refuge. And the key thing here is that Mick hadn't decided that that was okay. He was the one that decided when relationships were over. He was the one that decided what happened on a daily basis. So the fact that Lisa had betrayed him by taking that power away from him, it was only going to result in in something really alarming in return. Lisa's moving out wasn't just a personal blow, it was a financial blow. Not only did he lose her income as a cleaner, but he was no longer entitled to benefits for their children. The custody hearing was set for May 11th the same year, and Mick, determined to keep the children concocted a plan to ensure they would be returned to Victory Road. I think Maraid was very much under Mick Philpott's control at this point in time. I think he would have um, quite easily have talked her around into actually being a part of this. Out of the vanity and arrogance of the man, together with his wife Maraid and Paul Mosley, the kind of live-in, sometime lover, they hatch a scheme to set fire to the house in Victory Road in an effort to provoke the council to give him a bigger house, but also to blame his mistress. She will not get the custody of the children. It is an extraordinary, bizarre plan. And a fucked up one at that. Just a bit. Let's set our house on fire. Blame it on her. Well, how arrogant to even think that would work. Also, 
how wasteful of a house that could also house someone else. Yeah. Is it, the whole thing is mad. In early May, Mick told the police that Lisa had threatened to kill him. And on the same day at the custody hearing, on May 11th, petrol was poured through the house's letterbox and set alight. While Mick and Maraid were downstairs, six of Mick's children were sleeping upstairs. The fire they'd set up, it takes hold of the house, far greater than he possibly could have conceived. The house is in a blaze and fills up with smoke in a matter of minutes. He makes a 999 call, claiming his house is on fire and his kids are inside. Former neighbour Daniel Stevenson went outside and saw the house engulfed in flames. My brother woke me up. And that's when I looked out the window, seeing thick black smoke coming from the house. I got out of bed, got dressed, got my pyjamas on, uh, trainers, ran out the door, went straight to the property. Just wanted to help, so there was no way of getting in through the front, so I went round the back, climbed over the caravan, and dropped down the other side. I got into the back garden, and I seen Mick and Marie there, and just crying, screaming, shouting. They was on the phone to the emergency services, I believe, and they were saying that my house is on fire and it was out my baby, my baby. Daniel tried to search inside the house, but he could only make it a few feet before the smoke obscured everything. It was very, like, misty because everything's just happening so fast. I attempted to go into the house. I got as far as the kitchen, couldn't go any further. The smoke was just too thick, it was choking, black, couldn't see anything, so I had to come back out. There was a ladders at the side going up to a window. I tried climbing up to there, and there was a ratchet in the window where Mick's been trying to smash in, I think, and there was smoke coming from that window. I then came back down the ladders and I climbed up onto a wooden frame what he's been built in onto his conservatory. I climbed up to the window, see if any windows were open, none of them were open. Then I put one of the windows through with a wrench from, from the other window. I chucked out the window, it smashed straight through. I then continued putting the window through with the, the pickaxe on the roof, smashing all the window up. I was about to climb into the property. Again, couldn't see nothing, couldn't hear nothing, and hear no screams. What a hero, though, for a neighbour. It's really distressing to hear that, because the silence is... Horrific. Says a, says a thousand words, you might say. Um, I have... I know he said that there was already a ladder up against the window and a ratchet to try and... a wrench to try and break the window. But if he was then able to go round to the back of the house and break a window, why was Mick not trying to do that? Like, I can see Maraid would probably have to wait to be told to go do that. Yeah, because if she'd been under that level of control for so long, but um, I yeah, just, why is this guy only the only one that seems to be doing something? I cannot imagine watching your house burn with your kids inside and not trying, not burning yourself to try and get them out. Um, I can't. I can't it's difficult. That that's um. Especially knowing that he's orchestrated it and this poor guy has risked his own life for something that Mick's done and you'd feel responsible. I know that he's not 
Like, if you're the neighbour trying to break in and you didn't succeed, you would feel partly responsible or, like, guilty or, like, even though you shouldn't. He shouldn't. He's tried everything he could. What an excellent man. When the emergency services turned up, the fire was too ferocious for them to to enter. So by the time it was safe to go in, it was too late. Five of the children, 10-year-old Jade, 9-year-old John, 7-year-old Jack, 6-year-old Jesse and 5-year-old Jaden had all lost their lives. 13-year-old Dwayne was taken to hospital, but he later died from his injuries. The damage to the house is drastic and there is no way that those poor six children could possibly have escaped. Smoke inhalation alone would have been deadly. Shocked neighbours began to spill out onto the street as the full horror of the tragedy became apparent. I think nearly the whole street was out on the front. Uh, the fire brigade were in the house, flashing lights everywhere. I pushed to the front of the house and I could see the uh, firefighters bringing the children out. Um, some, some in blankets, I think they used the blankets to try and protect them a bit. A bit more. And the ambulance were trying to resuscitate some of them. I was just hoping that the kids would survive and recover. I was just, um, didn't really know what to think at the time. Didn't know what had happened, didn't know what caused the fire, just didn't know anything. Poor bloke, to have to witness that. It's really hard to listen to, isn't it? Yeah. It's just a horrific sight to have to fucking see, isn't it? Just innocent children that have just, through the fucking, like, awful actions of their father that was just fucking greedy and arrogant. Experts arrived at the scene to determine the source of the fire. Forensic scientist Daniel Matthews was part of the team. Mostly the house was um, was pretty much undamaged. There was uh, The roof was intact, the walls were intact. Um, the front door was noticeably more damaged than anywhere else. And also the, the window on the landing, there's a small window on the landing upstairs that had, um, that had been um, damaged by the fire and had dropped out. But apart from that, the only way you could really tell there was a fire at the house was by small signs of some soot coming out from the vents at the top of some of the double glazed windows. The fire had started in the entrance hallway behind the front door. And from there it had spread a little bit into the living room, uh, but mostly it had spread up the stairs. The window at the very top of the stairs was open a little bit, and, and that had been breached by the fire. Now, obviously fire tends to go up and out, so effectively the stairwell from a fire in there would act almost like a chimney, in that the fire and, and the hot gases and the fumes would all go, mostly go upstairs. One of the things they needed to figure out and fast was the blaze an accident, or had someone started it on purpose? We had a, an arson dog handler with us that day. And that dog is trained to indicate on various different ignitable liquids such as petrol, diesel, white spirit and, and the things that we, that we commonly see um, in, in arsons. And the dog clearly indicated that uh, he thought something was present. Um, so we would take a sample from that area and then it would be sent for analysis and the analysis determined that petrol was, was there. When I completed my scene examination I was able to say that the fire had been started deliberately. Just side note real quickly, do you think dogs are great? An arson dog handler. But to also, to be able to identify the smell of an accelerant underneath the smell that has burned. 
Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Isn't it? Like, that's really clever. Dogs are. They've got such great noses. So great. As the sun rose that day, the true horror of the house fire on Victory Road in Derby became clear. Investigations had revealed that the blaze which had killed six children had been started on purpose. So why? Mick Philpott's plan was essentially to exact revenge on Lisa. He'd moved from trying to control her by keeping her in a relationship with him to trying to destroy her for leaving it. He was vile towards her. He made threats towards her through other people. She was incredibly frightened. And what he was trying to do was essentially create a story, create a set of events that he could blame her for. I think what convinced him that this thing would work was himself. You know, his stupidity and his self-absorption that he thought, I'm too good, this plan is, is infallible. I think Philpott thought that nobody would ever leave him because he was so amazing. So I think it was a combination of everything. At first, the plan did seem to work. The day after the fire, May 12th, Lisa and her brother-in-law were arrested on suspicion of starting the blaze, but they were soon released without charge. Police began to ask around the neighbourhood and found out that Mick was a dangerous man. The police start to talk to the neighbours, who point out that Philpott is this conceited pig of a man, and... They begin to put together what actually happened. They find evidence of a petrol can. They find a glove. Detectives began to grow suspicious of the Philpots and their possible motives. On Wednesday, Mick and Maraid appeared on television once again, holding a press conference. Their faces were wrinkled with grief and Mick regularly dabbed his eyes. Maraid was so distraught she couldn't speak. It almost defies self-deception. It is disgraceful but at the outset the police believe that this is something that has genuinely a a tragedy six children no adults in the house you might ask why weren't there any adults in the house didn't feel part know that that the police has experts on on reading people you know they have people who are trained for years on reading um, body language facial expressions eye movement voice intonation you know everything Mick appeared to be distraught and started to thank people who tried to help him on the night of the fire. But body language expert Robert Phipps said Mick easily showed signs that he was not really that upset. Mick Philpot is very controlled throughout the whole interview, making a point of thanking everybody else but not really mentioning the children that have just died. The signals that he gives off are not in the normal range of somebody expressing grief, anxiety, sadness which he should do, having just lost his children. Somebody normally expressing grief, you would see contorting of the face, not just one consistent look. And this is what you have with Mick, is one consistent look throughout the whole thing. His face is not going through the turmoil, as compared to Maraid, who you see her eyebrows are moving, her forehead has got different wrinkles in it, her face is just contorted with pain. We don't see any of that from Mick. Right from the beginning, Mick Philpott's body language is inconsistent with somebody showing grief. Mick is dabbing away with his tissue here to imaginary tears. They're not there, therefore the the tissue itself doesn't get wet, it doesn't crumple. At the end of the conference, Mick asked the general public to leave his family alone. Why didn't he want any more questions? Because he knows he did it. Mick was reported to have behaved strangely at the hospital as well. While visiting his children's bodies, he joked around with the mortuary staff. 
He also hit on a police officer and asked her back to his hotel. I mean, what the fuck? It wasn't just the police who was suspicious. Mick's performance had baffled the press too. I am shooketh. He hit on the police officer. Like, fuck off, Mick. What the fucking fucker of what? I think for me it was he was joking around with the mortuary star. Disgusting. My God. The fucking audacity of the man. At the end of it... I got in the car to drive back to the office and I thought, that's not right. Something's not right about that. He's not once mentioned the children. He's not mentioned them by name. He's not looked into any cameras and said, please, will someone out there help me find out who's done this? It's a suspicious fire in his own home and not once has he made an appeal to the public, to anyone who's watching, you know, please, anyone with information, come forward. Not once. So then I got back to the office And as I walked in, I could see everyone was still stood around the TV and we all looked at each other and that was the moment that we all knew, you know, know, something's wrong here. This is a game-changer. 88 officers working on the case had taken over 5,000 statements from local residents and most of the residents questioned Mick's efforts to save his children. On the 29th of May 2012, 18 days after the fatal blaze, Mick and his wife Mairead were arrested on suspicion of murder. And again, that was another strange scenario because I was sat at my desk and a press release pings into my inbox that says a 56-year-old man and a 31-year-old woman have been arrested on suspicion of murder in connection with the Victory Road fire. And immediately I stood up and I shouted over to news desk that the Philpots had been arrested on suspicion of murder. Although the police wouldn't confirm on the record that this is who it was, we got confirmation via other sources that it, you know, if we said it's the Phil Potts that's been arrested, would we be wrong? No. Mick had spent a long time being anything but a model citizen, but still the community took care of the children. Funeral services for the children were held on June 22nd at St Mary's Catholic Church in Derby. The local community had raised more than £15,000 to pay for the funeral. Mick and Mairead, however, were not allowed to attend. It's very close near Allenton. Derby as a city is a small city, but it's a very proud city. And Allenton and some of the neighbouring areas to it and some of the, I hasten to use the word poorer areas, but the less affluent areas, um, it's very close-knit, really close-knit. I mean, the outpouring of emotion from the community was huge. It does say a lot about the community, the fact that they managed to raise £15,000 for the funeral, but also that the, the parents weren't allowed to go, and rightly so. Yeah, definitely. And that must have been horrible for the community, heartbreaking. It's a, it would be a shared grief. Yeah, exactly. Like, those people in the community... Their kids would have known the kids, like, might have, I know the kids were bullied, but they would have had friends. Playing out on the streets. Exactly. Just, I can't even imagine. On November 5th, another arrest was made. Forensic evidence was able to link Paul Mosley with the petrol that had started the fire. All three were originally charged with murder, but in December, these charges were downgraded to manslaughter. Reportedly... Paul Mosley was supposed to charge in and save the children, but that had never happened. It beggars belief to me that this charge is downgraded 
to manslaughter because, according to the uh, statements at the time, Phil Pott, his wife and Mosley, didn't mean to kill the children. It's a tiny semi-detached house and you've got six small children and you set fire to it. How can you not expect at least one of those children to die? It, it defies belief to me. I'm not being funny. Right. You don't... Oh, we didn't expect them to die. I don't believe you did, Mick, because you need them to pay for you. Like, I fully believe that he did not intend for those children to die. But even if you are fucking foolish enough to set a fire with, to a house with six children in it, you do not set fire to the bottom of the fucking stairs. And he was supposed to rush in afterwards. Where was he going to go? It's madness. Manslaughter? It's fuck. They made that decision as soon as that petrol was poured in a place that they could not escape from. That decision was made. Fucking idiot. <laughs> and I'm not talking about the cow. And I'm not talking about the police there. Like Philpot, Mosley, fucking idiots. You joking? Sharp. I genuinely, I genuinely think that he he must have been a fucking idiot. I, I just don't understand what part of that plan. Like, it wasn't our intention to hurt any of the children, but we're going to set the house on fire. Like, you'd do it by the back door. Yep. In the kitchen or yeah. something like that. Make it look like a chip pan fryer or like fire or something. You know what I mean? They didn't hear it. They'd all gone to bed, whatever. Like, or put yourselves upstairs so that you're already with the children to take them out. To help them. Oh, luckily, I was watch washing my windows during the day and left the ladder up. So uh, we were all able to escape down the side of the ladder as my house burned down. I'd also like to point out that Paul Mosley was supposed to run in and save the children, but that never happened. Oh, yeah, Paul didn't turn up. He was supposed to come in and save the day. Yeah, like, Mick, then they're your fucking children. It wasn't even like you didn't... So unwilling to put himself in harm's way... That he wouldn't even... I'm actually kind of surprised at that because he's obviously quite an arrogant man. Yeah, he probably, just didn't, probably didn't want a singe's goatee. No, but you'd think that, well, you could get a hero card out of the, that, Mick. Not only will you be scrounging everybody's money off of him, like um, having all these kids, uh, you've, you've just saved those kids. But he doesn't care. He doesn't give a shit about those kids, does he? He never has. All three pleaded not guilty to manslaughter and so the trial was set. On February 12, 2013, at Nottingham Crown Court, prosecutors set out to prove that Mick Philpott and his wife, Maraid, and their sometimes partner, Paul Mosley, had deliberately started a fire that ended in the death of six of Mick's children. Prosecutors were set to prove the trio made a plan that went horribly wrong. Local reporter Martin Naylor was in the courtroom. I remember Mick, when he gave evidence, talking about hearing a whooshing noise. When you light petrol... You're not lighting the, f the fluid, you're lighting the fumes that's come off it. And in the time that it's taken for someone to put the, the petrol through the letterbox and then for someone, probably him, to light it, you know, this vapour was all up in the air. There was a huge whoosh. What he was describing was the whoosh of the fire going flying up the stairs. Now, those stairs had also been recently painted with, um, I think, yacht varnish or yacht paint, which is highly flammable. So the children, although there were working smoke alarms in there, they had no chance. They literally had no chance. And obviously the uh, cause of death was um, the effects of smoke inhalation. 
Because of the ferocity of the fire, no evidence remained inside the house. However, traces of petrol had been found on all three of the defendant's clothes. In one of the trial's key moments, Mick Philpott was asked to give his own version of the events of the night. Here's Liz Yardley. During the trial, what we've got to remember is that this is essentially another stage on which Mick Philpott performs. Um, he is playing to an audience. There are several outbursts of, of anger, and, and when his, his relatives shout at him in court, um, he shouts back at them and he sticks his middle finger up to them. So he, he really is incredibly defiant. Um, he's incredibly showman-like in his personality. He wants to be the, the centre of attention. He knows that the media circus is still going on and he wants to be the ringleader. When Mick took the stand, he was the showman that he always was. Again, he was, he was crying or supposedly crying in the dock. But the prosecution saw through all that. I don't think there was one single thing that nailed him. I think it was just the case just built up and built up and built up and was so strong. It was almost like piling bricks on top of him, just waiting, waiting for him to collapse. And I think his collapse came in his cross-examination because his dinars were just absolutely ripped apart. The trial lasted an emotionally exhausting eight weeks. The prosecution brought many witnesses from Mick's past, including many of his ex-girlfriends. They explained his controlling nature and they often sought out young girls to groom. On April 2nd, 2013, the jury found the trio guilty of manslaughter. I recall one of Mairead's sisters standing up in the public gallery and shouting to her, I knew on day one you'd done this. I knew you'd done this before storming out. It was the first time that we'd effectively live blogged from court. We'd been given permission by the judge and my fingers were trembling as I was, you know, typing things out to send back to the office for them to, on the website straight away, guilty verdict, guilty verdict. Judge Mrs Justice Thurwell told the trio... All three of you are responsible for the deliberate setting of that fire. All three of you are responsible for those deaths. Maraid, Mick and Paul Mosley were each sentenced to 17 years. Mick Philpott was sentenced to life and was immediately sent to Wakefield Prison in West Yorkshire. Mrs Justice Thurwell described him as a disturbingly dangerous man and as the driving force behind the wicked plan. In my opinion, Philpot should have been given a whole life term, and I do not approve of whole life terms, but I cannot think of anyone who more richly deserves to spend the rest of his life behind bars than Mick Philpot, who killed six of his own children. He is a man who deserves nothing but the greatest contempt. And I cannot understand, I will never understand, why he was not charged and convicted of murder. This is a man that not only killed six of his own children, but killed six of his own children and didn't seem to give a shit afterwards. It's, it's mind-blowing, isn't it? He didn't give a shit. Mick Philpott's lust for revenge led to the death of six of his own children. For the neighbours who had known and tried to rescue the children, it was an emotional moment. I was relieved that it was over. I was a bit shocked that it was him. Because if you did see him with his kids, his family, um, very heartbreaking. Because uh, he, did, he did love his kids. He's shown that very much. I think it was 
some sort of ploy to to get something out of. I didn't think it was meant to spread that fast the fire. I didn't think it was meant to kill anyone. I think it was a very stupid thing f f to do. And unfortunately, he paid for it. There is not one single word you can find to explain or apologise for his actions. Seldom have I ever thought of someone as grotesque and as thoughtless and as vain as Philpot is. There is something about him that genuinely does send a chill down your spine. Whatever mixed intentions, Dwayne, Jade, John, Jack, Jesse and Jaden were never going to come back. The city of Derby now chooses to remember them and not their parents. And that was Mick Philpot. Well, if you're stuck with us... Well done. Pour yourself a gin or something, because that was hard. What are you going to have when you get home? A bath. Oh, nice. I'm not going to drink it. I'm going to get in it. Beautiful. Yeah. I'll, I'll go have a cup of tea. A cup of tea and another Twix, I think. Some self-care after this, son. Defo. Sometimes um, I sleep badly after. Do you? Yeah, I have a really over overactive imagination. I don't sleep well at the best of times, but I've had I have had nightmares after podcasts before. Oh, Danny! Yeah, oh, I, you kept that one quiet. Uh, not like, but I'm not like you know. They're not. It's not. And I can't do this anymore. I'm scared. No, you know, like it's not like they're not like you know, like wake up screaming nightmares. Yeah. But you know, I get really like I wake up and have a really bad foreboding because it was an unpleasant dream. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you can. I feel like this one might stay with me for a little bit. I had a dream last night that um, I had started getting my boobs out on my Instagram account. You know, I do outfit of the day videos, okay. like my styling videos on my Instagram. Normally, I start in just my pants, but I've just I just recently started in just my pants and no bra. And um, people were saying, "Whatever floats your boat," but a bit unprofessional, Helen, getting your tatties out. <laughs> well. I hope I dream about... I'm going to say me getting my tits out instead of you getting your tits out on Instagram. <laughs> Why are you not dreaming about my boobs? Um, instead of this. Yeah. I hope that for you too. Thanks, mate. Next time on Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We will be looking the awful crimes of the creepy dating show killer Rodney Alcala and he seriously is the biggest creep I've ever seen intriguing subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of Devils in the Dark and we would love it if you could leave us a review we love to hear from you in the meantime if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode please do check out the description for lots of helpful resources special thanks to woodcut media and our wonderful producers at audio boom studios